So what do you want for dinner tonight? In this episode, I am going to help you answer that question using a decision tree. Hey, this is Caleb, and you are listening to the Healthcare Analytics Podcast. Working with me doing editing research and everything else is my teammate Tatsuya Murao. In this specific podcast, we're talking about decision trees. And one of the reasons why is because decision trees are one of the most useful data modeling tools that we have at our disposal. And the reason why is because there are so many different applications for decision trees in the ways that advanced algorithms are built today. Let's take an example of where you want to eat for lunch or for dinner. Now, how do you decide that in your mind, right? What is the a few ways to do so? One would be, hey, what am I having a craving for? And if you want, let's say, Chipotle, or if you want fast food, or if you want a dine-out or dine-in restaurant uh, like steak, etc., then you are going to have a craving. You're going to say, pinpoint, this is exactly what I want, but you won't be able to explain why. But suppose it's one of those evenings where you're like, I really don't know what I want. I kind of feel like this and that and the other. How do you make that decision? Well, a decision tree is one of those ways that can help individuals identify a specific choice based on a tree. So what is a decision tree? A decision tree usually starts off with a root node or a starting node, and then as a course of different criteria, it will then split off into other nodes and it splits and splits and splits. And so at the end of a decision tree diagram, you will have a big triangle with a whole bunch of different choices that you can select from. And I'm sure that you've probably seen a, a diagram or a chart where it has an if this if it's yes, then follow this path. If it's no, then follow this path. If it has this criteria, then follow from no to this criteria. If it has a yes, then another one. To give you a more specific example, let's talk about where you want to eat tonight. Suppose you say, hey, where do I want to eat tonight? And the first question will be, do you want to eat in or do you want to dine out? And so that's the first one. If you choose eat in, then it will say, okay, what do you want to eat based on ingredients you have at home? So you can say, okay, well, I have milk and eggs and flour and maple syrup. And so based on all those ingredients, you can say, well, I could have pancakes or waffles. And that could be one. The other one could be, I could have meat and vegetables. The other choice could be something else, right? And so then you'll build out a tree that's that's binary and say, okay, I'm going to eat in. Am I going to have something with flour or grain-based or am I going to have something that's meat-based? And then you could go down the list again. If you say, hey, I want to eat out and you use that same criteria of using something that's, hey, I want something that's grain-based like a sandwich or want something that's meat-based or vegetable-based on the other end. And so further down, you can make different criteria along each level so that you could start to split out your choices into selections so that at the very, very bottom of your selection pyramid and or your decision tree, you could have a few different options that you want or optimally one different option. 
So that's essentially what a decision tree is. It is a algorithm or way of making decisions in which every single choice is binary and it splits it into a, another choice or another decision that needs to be made all the way down to where there can't be any decisions made and you have reached your criteria for selection. And that end decision is called a terminal node. That is the end node in your decision tree that decides what that choice will be. And so at the very, very beginning, you'll have a root node or a beginning node. And at the end, you'll have a terminal node. And so the nodes in the middle are called decision nodes. And so you will start with a root node. Then you will go to a series of decision nodes, depending on how many layers your tree has. And then it will end with a terminal node. And there are several kinds of algorithms that determine if a certain criteria has been met based on that terminal node, uh, based on a yes or no. So, for example, if you're saying, where do I want to eat out tonight? And it has a criteria for meals, and this is a full meal, then at the end of a terminal node, it will say, this is a full meal, you can do that. Or if you say, hey, what restaurant do I want to go eat out tonight? Then the terminal node will be a specific restaurant name. And that will be your decision criteria to say, okay, into the algorithm, this is your, uh, this is your choice. But sometimes if you have too many criteria or if there is an error within your decision tree, then it will loop and loop and loop and loop and won't arrive at a decision because the decision criteria hasn't been defined well. And so if you set up a decision tree properly, then you will have a good starting point for your root node, and then you will have a good ending point for your terminal node. And if you have a good starting and end point, then you will be most likely to get the results that you're looking for at the end of a decision tree, meaning that your reliability will be higher when you have well-defined starting points and a well-defined end node that is used as a criteria within the algorithm. I'm going to talk about specific uses and applications for decision trees, but first it's important to understand how they work. One of the things you need to understand about how they work is a few definitions. And these definitions will be helpful because they will help you visualize and articulate the specifics of how decision trees work on a technical level. The first thing to understand is something called entropy. Now, entropy in data science helps us understand if something is knowable or not. And so it's on a scale between zero and one, where zero is something is knowable and one is that it's not knowable. So if I ask you, hey, what do you want for dinner? And you say, I don't know. Well, what that means is that the entropy is equal to one, meaning that it's 100% not knowable and there is no way of knowing what to have for dinner. Now, if it approaches zero, what that means is that things become more and more knowable. And there can be a, a definition to an endpoint for a decision tree. And we can play this out in a series of games and start to understand entropy along the entire decision tree. So suppose I ask you, hey, what do you want for dinner tonight? And you say, hey, I don't know. So I ask, well, do you want 
something that's meat-based or something that's plant-based? And you say, well, I want something that is plant-based. And then I think to myself, ah, now we're getting to somewhere. Now we're getting to a known endpoint for what do you want to eat, right? And so at the root node, you can say, well, I really don't know. So my entropy will be one. But as I go through the decision trees, then it will start to approach zero. And so in deciding if it's meat-based or plant-based, then your entropy will be less than one. And so let's say for meat-based or plant-based food, then it will be 0.8. And then I ask, okay, what kind of plant-based food do you want? Do you want something that has grains in it or no grains? And so you say, well, I kind of don't want anything grain-related. And so that will then be another node and it will be more knowable. And so suppose the entropy now will be 0.7 instead of 0.8. And through all of these nodes, the algorithm will get to a point to where it's zero. And zero meaning it's knowable, it triggers an endpoint and it says, yes, this is the answer we're looking for. And that is, that is it according to a pre-selected criteria. What this means is that as you work through a decision tree, the amount of entropy decreases as each node starts to verify another decision. Another way to say this is that you have information gain as you go through this process. And so information gain is something else to know. So if entropy is the um, amount at which you decrease the the level of unknowableness from one to zero, then information gain is the difference between the entropy before a node split and the average entropy after the split. What this means is that as you go through the decision tree, you will have more and more information gain and less and less entropy. And this is important to realize because what you are looking for within the entire tree is the path that gives you the most amount of information gain through the least amount of nodes. And so if you can arrive at the right answer by asking three questions instead of 20, then you're more likely to get a more efficient a decision tree that takes 20 different decision nodes in order to reach its final conclusion or its terminal node. Once you start to understand that entropy goes from one to zero, where one is entropy at its root node and zero is at its terminal node, then you can start to see where the information gain is. What specific fork or split within the decision tree has the most amount of information gain? And what specific question or criteria is the most important or one of the most important for that decision tree? Because as you go through this decision tree, what you're looking for is the decisions that have the highest amount of information gain. Because if you take a look at those that have the highest information gain, then you can start to use those instead of all the other ones that that aren't necessary. The last thing that I will say is that usually many decision trees use what's called an ID3 algorithm. And so if you read anything about decision trees, it will typically list out an ID3 algorithm as the kind of algorithm used within decision trees. 
And what this ID3 algorithm will do is it will go through those forks and split it according to specific criteria within the algorithm. And most specifically, what an ID3 algorithm does is it's a greedy algorithm. So it will not take a look at the entire tree in general. It will take a look at the split from that node and identify which split is the most efficient in order to reach the end result. And so greedy algorithms are ones in which you use only local criteria to make a decision, a binary decision of, of which one to take or which uh, routes to take down the path. And so it's called a greedy algorithm because what it's trying to do is it's trying to simply and efficiently just choose the most local option possible and then get down to uh, another option. And so ID3 is a very common way of identifying which path to use within a decision tree. So now that you understand what a decision tree is, let's talk about its origins, its applications, and then how it's used today in data science. And practically speaking, Decision trees came right alongside the development of computers. And so in the 1960s, decision trees were being used for new computers that were coming out that involved integrated circuits. And the computers at that point were transitioning from vacuum tubes to integrated circuits, which was a huge change in the technology. And so if you can imagine what a computer looked like in the 1960s, it was a room or it was a floor on a library within a university that individuals could access if they only had computer time or computation time. This is when IBM would use their computers to calculate things like trajectories for their NASA space rockets. And these IBM computers would take up roomfuls depending on how big they were. And so decision trees were used within this context because you could use computation to go through a series of decisions in order to reach a criteria that was predetermined beforehand. And so in other words, you're able to build out a decision tree and select out when that end node was or when you have satisfied the question that you are wanting to answer. Before that, you had just theoretical concepts as k nearest neighbors, but it could only be applied in computation uh, with the early computers that you had in the 1950s, late 1950s. But as you know, the grandfather of them all is the regression algorithms, which came about in the 1800s. And so you have the 1800s, which Carl Gauss and Gaussian distribution came out with the theoretical concepts of regression. And so mathematics uh, was based on that as far as statistics is concerned. And then fast forward, you've got K-nearest neighbors and you've got decision trees, which were on the front edge and front end of computation that was being used for real world application. And many times these decision trees were used in the software to develop calculations. And so it would go through a series of different decisions along points of a specific software in order to reach a specific execution of the software you need. And you see this all the time in Windows. And I'm old enough to remember uh, Windows 94, Windows 98, 
and Windows, Vista, all of those. And so if you think about how you used old Windows computers, it was essentially like a decision tree. You'd have to go into this place and it would ask you, do you want this? And then you'd click yes or no. And then it asked you another question. What about this? And then you hit yes or no. And you'd go through these kinds of decisions. And what the software was doing on the back end was going through that decision tree and identifying what function to execute, et cetera. In the 1960s, it was no different. The only difference back then was that you don't have a lot of computational power to begin with. And so microprocessors weren't a thing until the late 1960s, where your first microprocessor came out in 1969 um, by Four Phrase Systems AL, which was a partnership, I believe, with a company called Garrett AI Research. And and in 1971, Intel came out with one of their first microprocessors. So before the 1970s and in the 1960s, you worked with processors that were really, really large instead of these microprocessors that were used for smaller or micro computers um, that were then became what we know in the 80s and 90s as, as smaller computers. All this to say is that Decision trees were an easy and efficient way of getting to where you wanted to go. And so a lot of times you would have software selectors within these big, large computing systems that didn't want to put a lot of computational energy into making decisions, but you had to help it arrive at the point you wanted it to. So from the origins of using data trees, The ability to use data trees now has been increased drastically. And the reason why is just because of raw computational power and the data available to us. So as Moore's law allows us to have more computational power, where the amount of processing can double every two years, roughly, with Moore's law, then our ability to use this decision trees can increase drastically. And so instead of looking at a small little decision tree with, let's say, 10 or 12 different nodes, we can run a decision tree just on your local computer that has hundreds and hundreds of nodes, depending on what you're running. And many times data scientists will use either R or Python in order to build out those decision trees, depending on what they're wanting to do. So in my mind, decision trees are at the foundation of modern data science. And the reason why is because without computation, it would be very, very difficult to execute decision trees on a large scale. But with computation and with the computation we have now, it's really easy to use for simple things. So for example, you can use it to identify specific things in biology, like what kind of tree it is or the kind of flower you're looking at. It can also be used for things like facial recognition, for identifying specific traits within a population, for behavioral health. It can be used for other things involving demographics, population studies, censuses on a national level. So if you are taking data that is census data that aggregates information up, then you can build a decision tree to find a specific subset of your population. There are many cool things you can do with decision trees. And without it, I feel like we wouldn't have been able to advance our way through as much as we have within data science and uh, technology in general. And today, decision trees or other algorithms based on decision trees are built to work through 
petabytes and petabytes of data or a boatload of data over a given number of days, time, et cetera. So Google and Amazon, Microsoft, and all of these guys are using decision trees at at least a very fundamental level, depending on what their application is. Because decision trees, although it sounds simple on the surface, once you start to implement it for a lot of data, then you start to get interesting results and you can start to identify specific trends within all of the data. You can start to identify specific items and you can start to get to unique decisions that wouldn't have been able to be identified without using high level computational power with decision trees. So as decision trees are the foundation, then you can start to understand that AI and machine learning are based on these models that we use today. And decision trees is one of these modern models that is used constantly. The last thing that I will leave you with is how we can use it on a practical level. One of the ways that I like to use decision trees is to use it using Python. And so as a library within Python, you can use skitkitlearn, which is S-K-I-K-I-T dash learn. And this library can do an awful lot. But one of the things I like to do is I like to use this library to start to build out decision trees in Python. You can also use other programming languages to build out decision trees. But for me, Python is the easiest way to implement decision trees because you don't need a lot of lines of code and you don't need a lot of data to see how a decision tree works at a practical level. And if you have any other questions about decision trees or other data models, including regressions, k-nearest neighbors, Monte Python, I mean Monte Carlo simulation, not Monte Python, although they both sound really similar. Anyway, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. You can find us on LinkedIn or Twitter if you look for Arcos Analytics. Likewise, you can email us directly at podcast at arcosanalytics.com. Also, we are putting together live events that can help teach other leaders within healthcare how to practice and how to implement data science analytics and building out decision tools for their organization. And so these live events are helpful because they can help you take all of the ideas from analytics and data science and actually apply them. We'll go through a series of different topics, including where to get data for analytics research, what specific tools are best to use in your application. We'll go into other topics that are relevant to healthcare and analytics. So if you want to know more about our live online events, go to arcosanalytics.com events. Thanks, and I will talk to you later.